And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. As you well know, the 7th of December marks the anniversary of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, a momentous occasion in both American history and world history, and an event which led directly to the United States' entry into the Second World War. To commemorate this anniversary, we're replaying two interviews from the Morning Show archives. We'll begin with best-selling author Craig Nelson and his nearly definitive account of the attack on Pearl Harbor. In part two, you'll hear an interview which I recorded back in 2016, which was the 75th anniversary year of the attack on Pearl Harbor, a book which in very intriguing fashion ties together the attack on Pearl Harbor with that year's Rose Bowl. Here's part one. Some of you may fondly remember, as I do, my conversation with author Craig Nelson about a superb book called Rocket Men. Uh, he is back on the morning show today to talk about his most recent book, which uh, promises to be perhaps the definitive account not only of what happened at Pearl Harbor, but the events leading up to it and the consequences of it in uh, the years that followed. The book is called Pearl Harbor From Infamy to Greatness, and uh, the book is published by Scribner. Craig Nelson, we welcome you back to the morning show. Great to be back. A big shout-out to all my ancestors in Wisconsin. (laughs) I appreciate, among other things, the fact that uh, your book takes the time that it does for the events leading up to Pearl Harbor in 1941 in that section of the book called The Roads to War. And I have to say that uh, even though I I had some acquaintance with the fact that, uh, that there were those who in a sense, foresaw the attack on Pearl Harbor. I mean, warned of its, uh, of its likelihood and of America's unpreparedness for it. Uh, I have to confess to just f- finding it chilling to sort of read account after account of those sorts of warnings. I wonder if you had the same experience as well. Uh, I mean, a, a, a maybe a, a, a great sense of regret that none of those warnings were adequately heeded. Actually, in our research, I've almost came to the opposite conclusion in that uh, the military repeatedly told Roosevelt and his Secretary of State Hull that with 43,000 servicemen stationed on Hawaii, the Japanese would never dare attack Hawaii, and we were far more uh, a bigger military presence in the Pacific than Japan, and there was nothing to worry about. And then they, and I believe that that inspired the two of them to deal diplomatically in a belligerent way with Japan and not negotiate what could have been a peace that would have kept Pearl Harbor from happening. And the military maintained that position until November 5th, uh, 1941, uh, about a month before the attack, when they said, you know what, Japan is very powerful in the Pacific. You should play for time. Hmm. So that actually is what chilled me when we came across that uh, piece of paper, uh, because they actually called Hawaii the Gibraltar of the Pacific, and and that no one would dare attack it. Interesting. So, yeah, that was that was a, that gave me chills. Right. Uh, some of the concerns that were raised by members of the military early on were the fact that that Pearl Harbor was not the greatest place for that for our entire fleet to be stationed, that it did not have adequate resources to keep the fleet in tip-top shape, tip-top condition, uh, ready to, to sort of uh, sustain an attack if should, should such an attack uh, occur. 
But those complaints could be said about anything in the military at that time because uh, it was on a very downward slope because Americans were so hostile to uh, war because they had gone through what was then called the Great War and seen no benefit to it. Uh, and so the military was being starved. In uh, at this era, uh, we had uh, pie plate helmets that only protected the back of your head. Most of the commanders were veterans of the Spanish-American War. Uh, the most common weapon was a 1903 Springfield rifle. And in fact, Hawaii and the Panama Canal were the two best-funded and best-equipped foreign outposts of the American military. Hmm. In this portion of the book called The Roads to War, you help us understand what drove Japan uh, to the actions which it undertook in the 1930s and ultimately, of course, at Pearl Harbor in 1941. One of the things that you lay out for us is their pursuit of what seems to have been, in a sense, their own version of the Monroe Doctrine. Talk about yeah, that. Yeah, that, that was so interesting to find out that, you know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's distant cousin Teddy had come up with this idea that they should consider their own version of the Monroe Doctrine, which is where you basically say uh, anyone coming into our sphere of influence with uh, colonial ambitions, you're going to take us on to. That's basically what the Monroe Doctrine was. And, and that's what Japan said that it was doing, and, and it called itself the... Uh, great Asia co-prosperity sphere that it was trying to set up this empire. But it didn't act like that when it took over these countries, uh, when it invaded China and then took over all of Southeast Asia in its huge grab called Operation Number 1, which is one of the most astonishing military stories of all time. And Pearl Harbor was just a protection of the flank of that Operation Number 1. But w when they invaded all these countries, they did nothing to prop up the infrastructure and get all the natural resources that was their idea in the first place. So their Monroe Doctrine didn't work out well. Right. What was it uh, that, uh, that we tend not to understand in terms of the way in which Japan felt uh, again and again belittled by the United States, not properly respected. I think there are some instances of that that we know pretty well, and there are others in your book that you outline that uh, I think are, are less well-known to the American public. I think that many people in America don't understand what disrespect is. <laughs> certain people know it too well, and certain other people don't. And when the United States is dealing with a less wealthy, less powerful country, as most countries are, we sort of have to be uh, polite in a certain way. We have to be overly polite to have good relations with them. And here, Japan had been the first Asian country to beat a European power when it defeated the, the Russians. And she was growing in every single way until the Great Depression put the brakes on. But she felt constantly belittled by uh, Washington, especially uh, during every single military negotiation, seemed to end badly for her. So it, it was like many years of resentment had built up on the road to war. You write at one point, as highly as Americans regarded China at this time, they held Japan in low regard, thinking them slow-brained, irrational, primitive, neurotic, compulsive, and mechanically incompetent with inner ear defects, extreme nearsightedness, and buck teeth, racially inferior. And then you go on to say that that uh, a significant element in the surprise at Pearl Harbor was the great number of Americans who could not conceive of Japan successfully attacking the United States. 
it was quite something. The real the, there's one really chilling document where a um, uh, admiral goes to speak with the heads of the navy, and he's trying to really get them going with getting better technology. And he explains to them that China, uh, excuse me, Japan has this fantastic experience because they've been at war with China, and they have this great new technology with their torpedoes and with their aircraft. And no one would take him seriously because they just said, oh, come on, you're talking about those funny little people. Mm. Of course, there's nothing funny about uh, some of the acts of incredible barbarism uh, that, that Japan uh, committed uh, during the 1930s and the years leading up to, to Pearl Harbor. To what can we point to explain where this kind of barbarism emerged? Well, there's a bunch of theories and Probably, I think the biggest one is another kind of racism that the Japanese had against the Chinese. And, uh, and, and they, it, it, as a background to this, there's a very disturbing landmark in, uh, outside of uh, Kyoto called the Ear Mound. Because when the Japanese invaded Korea and took it over before all this happened, they brought home ears as souvenirs. And they're buried in this enormous mound outside Kyoto. And I believe if you look at that, you start seeing that uh, at war, they started seeing their captives as inhuman. And, and this is what you hear over and over and over again, that people who were POWs of Japan would be treated in an inhuman manner. They didn't see their foes as human. You say that if Franklin D. Roosevelt bears any responsibility for Pearl Harbor, it is in his focus on the European theater to the detriment of the Pacific theater. Uh, just say a word about uh, what's behind those words. Well, what happened is a, is a terrible trick in that uh, FDR was trying to fight Japan using economic sanctions. Uh, we supplied 80% of her petroleum and almost 100% of her scrap metal, and she was using this to live on and also to wage war. So he set forth a series of ever-increasing and ever-more-stringent embargoes to try and stop the war machine. But behind his back, uh, to, to uh, the State Department and the Treasury Department, colluded so that it turned into a total oil embargo. And what uh, FDR said was he wanted to slip the noose around her and give it a tug now and then, but he didn't want to start the wrong war in the wrong ocean at the wrong time. Hence our, hence our focus in the one and uh, a little less focus on the other, and that might be one ingredient in why we found ourselves so surprised by the attack on Pearl Harbor and not prepared for it. Well, we also only, uh, you know, our only allies left in Europe were uh, uh, Russia and uh, uh, England. So we're, they were falling fast, and I think it, they really believed that if England fell, America would be next. Hmm. Uh, at any rate, we all know the events of Pearl Harbor itself, that, that attack, but uh, you certainly spell them out in, 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 in incredible detail, uh, as well as America's uh, uh, response to it with what first was called Special Aviation Project Number 1, a really, really daring attack on Japan itself. Uh, I want to finish by asking you uh, to explain something that is said at one point uh, in which you say essentially the America that we live in was born on December 7th, 1941, that in a sense 
our history as a nation is bisected by this event, and in a sense, a new nation with new priorities emerged at this dark hour in our history. Uh, what are you saying there? I really do feel this way, that the re- American reaction to Pearl Harbor was to create the world's biggest fighting force, an enormous State Department and foreign aid program, uh, becoming the, ending up being the premier global superpower in 1945, uh, creating nuclear arsenal. And all of this combines to mean that we haven't had World War III uh, in 70 years, which is called the Pax Americana. Uh, we have not had a World War III, and that all comes from Pearl Harbor. Mm. The book is Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness, published by Scribner and the author Craig Nelson. Craig Nelson, congratulations on a really superb and fascinating book. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Part two of today's program features an interview which was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2016, which was the 75th anniversary of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. In this anniversary year of Pearl Harbor, I am really happy to have read a fascinating book called Fields of Battle, Pearl Harbor, the Rose Bowl, and the Boys Who Went to War. It's a very interesting way to think about the momentous day of, of, uh, of December 7, 1941, and the way in which so many lives were completely transformed, to say nothing of the world itself. Uh, but in particular, in this book, we take a look at some young men who participated in uh, what the author, Brian Curtis, says at one point is a game remade by infamy. We're talking about the Rose Bowl that was played in January of 1942 between Duke and Oregon State. And uh, these were two powerhouse football teams populated by very, very talented and hardworking players. And many of them were destined to see battle, and some would not survive the war that was uh, about to begin. And uh, it's a very, very moving, inspiring, uh, exciting book. And uh, Brian Curtis has done amazing work here in tracing the stories of so many of the the young men who participated in this dramatic uh, Rose Bowl. Uh, He is a New York Times uh, bestselling author. He has contributed to Sports Illustrated, responsible for a number of uh, important books, including Go Long, My Journey Beyond the Game and Fame with football player Jerry Rice, and also the Legacy Letters, Messages of Life and Hope from 9-11 Family Members. Again, this uh, amazing book is called Fields of Battle, Pearl Harbor, the Rose Bowl, and the Boys Who Went to War, published by Flatiron Books. Brian Curtis, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, of the books that I've done, this is now my seventh, certainly the books that I had written with the 9-11 families five years ago was meaningful, but this was meaningful to me in its own way. I, I not only feel like I learned a lot, but I believe that, you know, we all can do a better job of remembering the sacrifice from 75 years ago. Of course. Um, I'm really, really curious to know, first of all, how you even first found out about this dramatic Rose Bowl and the circumstances under which it was was uh, was waged and and uh, the, the way in which you 
from there went on to 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 construct this book. How did this all begin? It began when I was working on something completely unrelated, a consulting project, and I happened to read a newsletter from the Rose Bowl in the spring of 2013, and it was a general newsletter, upcoming events, here's what's going on at the Rose Bowl, and there was a little did you know. Did you know that the only Rose Bowl game never to be played in Pasadena was played in Durham in 1942? And as a former sports reporter and a sports junkie, I was kind of curious, but I had actually never heard that before. So just casually, I said, huh. And I went to Google, like many of us do these days, to try to learn more about the circumstances behind how the, the game was moved. And, you know, the more I learned about why the game was moved, and then the more I learned about some of the players and coaches involved, the more I was hooked. So I ended up writing it as a story for Sports Illustrated that came out in August of 2013. Then shortly thereafter, I dove into the work on the book. And it was probably two to two and a half years of the research and writing. And then we were fortunate for the book to come out in uh, late September of this year. Right. In this uh, special anniversary year of, of Pearl Harbor. So the timing is great. I'm astounded, however, that you were able to put... Uh, this thoroughly researched book together in in that amount of time, I would have guessed that it would have taken you even longer. As you say towards the back of the book, uh, one of the biggest challenges is the fact that uh, essentially all of the major participants uh, in that 1942 Rose Bowl uh, are dead and gone. And, uh, And on top of it, Many of them, as was so often the case with with men of that generation, did not necessarily uh, share all that generously or openly uh, their own stories. They, in many cases, they just kind of got back to the to the business of of living, and uh, and and didn't necessarily even share all that much about what they had uh, experienced, particularly on the battlefield. Just talk for a moment about how you set about uh, finding out as much as you did about uh, all of these different men uh, who played in this Rose Bowl so many years ago? Well, I kind of worked backwards. Uh, I certainly knew who the coaches were. I was not sure of the players. I got a hold of the game day roster that was in the original Rose Bowl program from that 1942 game, and I kind of worked backwards. I would start one by one, first trying to do what I could online to see if they were still alive, if I was able to confirm that they were alive, trying to track them down. Um, and, of course, in, in almost every case, they were deceased. Then it was, well, how do I track down their family? Um, you know, both Duke and Oregon State, the two participants in the game, did not have great up-to-date <clears throat> alumni records. So, you know, in some cases, it took me many, many months of sleuthing online to track down somebody that knew how to get in touch with a son or daughter. And then, as you kind of pointed out, you know, I, I was so excited when I finally found uh, a family member, and they said, Brian, we love this idea. You're so grateful, but we can't help you because Dad never talked about war, and Dad never talked about um, his time in college. We know he played in the Rose Bowl, but we don't know anything about it. And so it was a little disappointing and disheartening, but, you know, I stuck with it as much as I could. I... um I hired a military researcher who was able to help me um, uh, track down the military records um, of these gentlemen 
Of course, then I learned that there was a fire in the U.S. military archives in 1973, and many of the Army records for gentlemen before 73 were destroyed. So that was another hurdle in the book. But piece by piece, I was able to reconstruct the best I could about these guys, where they served, what went on at their universities. And, you know, a real blessing as part of this is that I've been able to educate the families, actually, and tell the families about their dad's service and what classes their dads took in college and things like that. So that, that's been a great part of this. There are a lot of things that I appreciate about this book, and one of them is that what you end up telling us are uh, entirely human stories that uh, are also unvarnished stories. Uh, that is, uh, it, it seems to me that you have resisted the urge to uh, try to couch these stories, these portraits, uh, in larger-than-life terms, or or uh, sort of injecting sort of added heroism uh, into these stories. Uh, you, you, you tell us uh, all that is, is important for us to know about these, these men, including their shortcomings, their limitations, and, uh, and in some cases how difficult life was for them afterwards. I just wonder how conscious uh, a choice was that that you made. I think it's a fair question. Uh, you know, when I went into this uh, as a undergraduate degree in American government and a passionate uh, lover of history, I had this expectation of what the greatest generation was all about. Many of us have read Tom Brokaw books. We've seen Save It Private Ryan. We've read, we've read or watched so many stories, especially the last fifteen years, Band of Brothers and others. And I. I really learned through this process that, you know, they came home as heroes, but that doesn't mean they lived a heroic rest of their life. You know, a lot of these gentlemen were never diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, certainly it wasn't even called that 75 years ago. They came home. A lot of them faced unemployment. Remember, women had entered into the workforce and taken a lot of jobs. Um, there was alcohol abuse, drug abuse, suicide. So certainly there are the uplifting stories of uh, gentlemen who served valiantly on the battlefield, came home, were successful CEOs and wonderful things. And I do write about those folks, but for the main subjects of my story, it was important for me to follow through. And what did happen to these guys? And it just so happens that some of them didn't necessarily lead wonderfully happy lives. And I think that's important for readers to understand, too, that even though these guys were heroes, uh, life was still life when they returned home. And it is, um, it's, it's remarkable. You know, we talk about treating our veterans right today in the VA, um, and certainly there are certainly parallels to today's world. Um, but these men struggled, and, and, you know, we're on the last. I do not know the actual count, but there's not too many veterans left in the world and certainly in America. I mean, think about out of this book of 80 plus players and coaches, I've only been able to track down one player that is still living from that 1942 game. Mm. And that's just with a selection of, of 80 plus men. Right. So, so we, we can deduce from that, that, uh, that, uh, world war two veterans, uh, 
are, are, are vanishing and, and, and very few remain among us, which makes uh, the telling of these stories all, all the more important. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with author Brian Curtis about his latest book, which is called Fields of Battle, Pearl Harbor, the Rose Bowl, and the Boys Who Went to War. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the choices you make is to uh, essentially begin your book after a brief prologue with the story of um, one of the two men who served as the head coaches for this historic Rose Bowl game, namely Wallace Wade, who was the uh, uh, who was such a, a legendary figure in in so many respects uh, at at Duke. Um, one of my favorite stories you tell about uh, 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 Wallace Wade as a young man is a moment. Uh, fairly early in his life when he had to stand up to his father over the issue of race. Uh, And it says a lot about what this young man was made of and what was important to him. Uh, Could you uh, share that story with our listeners? Certainly back in the early part of the 20th century, we're talking about 1914, 1915, you can imagine that race relations were not great and African-Americans in our country suffered greatly. Uh, Though Wade was from the western part of Tennessee, he ended up following his brother and ended up going to boarding schools, uh, not just in Tennessee, but ultimately in Chicago, and then went off to Brown University, um, the bastion of the New England set. And while there, a gentleman named Fritz Pollard was an African-American, was a running back, one of the best players in America, and yes, he happened to be black. Well, early on in his tenure, Wallace Wade played on the offensive and defensive line, blocking for his teammate, who Wallace had no problem with. But when his father found out that his son would be on the same team as an African-American player, he demanded that his son stop playing or come home, withdraw from Brown. And really, for the first time in his life, Wallace stood up to his dad. You know, it started there with this sense of equality and fairness. When I skip forward ahead, you know, 10, 20 years, and Wade is coaching, um, you know, certainly when he was coaching at Alabama and then at Duke, two southern schools, certainly the South was not integrated at that point. And when Duke went to play Syracuse, who had an African-American all-star player at quarterback, uh, Duke received many threats against Wallace, Wade, and Duke. How could you go play a school against an African-American and Wade said, you know what, we're, we're playing this game. We want to play them at their best. There were numerous examples of that throughout Wade's career. And I think you make a great point that it all started back when he was just a 17, 18-year-old in college at Brown. But he really stuck to it. Now, does that mean that Wade was perfect? No. Does that mean that Wade you know, treated every African-American he met, he met in the South the same? Obviously, I can't, I can't speak to that. But it was part of the early integration that gentlemen like Wallace Wade took a stand, and they just saw football players. They didn't really see race. Right. By the way, we should just parenthetically say uh, how Fritz Pollard figures um, in the history of professional football. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say it's a name I did not know, but it's a name uh, any of us who care about uh, football should know. Yeah, and Fritz Pollard would go on. In fact, his legacy is even more important off the field now 
there's actually the Fritz Pollard Alliance. And the Fritz Pollard Alliance works today to create more opportunities, um, especially for coaches and administrators um, around the country, at both the professional and um, the collegiate level. And, you know, Pollard is one of the first two African-American players in the NFL. Um, in the early 1920s is when he eventually broke in. He played with, you know, teams that are not around anymore. He played in Akron. He actually played in Milwaukee, actually. He played with the Milwaukee Badgers, I believe, in 1922 or 1923. Um, and then became a coach with different teams as well. So he had a uh, uh, his own uh, certainly great NFL career, but again, more of what he did is known for the integration and for breaking a lot of color barriers off the field. Absolutely. Um, it's really hard to know where to begin in terms of the uh, the uh, the various players whose storylines you, you, you follow, but uh, certainly among the most compelling is that of Charlie Haynes. And he's actually, I think, uh, the, the first player we meet at the very beginning of the book. Uh, he has come for a special anniversary gathering of participants of this historic uh, Rose Bowl. Uh, so we, we know from that point that he's going to be someone important in this, in this book. And certainly what you tell us about his background makes us really like this young man a lot. Tell our listeners about Charlie Haynes. Charlie Haynes was a boy who grew up in Durham, about a mile from Duke. His father worked for the American Tobacco Company, as many dads did back in the day. Charles was kind of the all-American kid. Um, he rode ponies. He learned how to ride horses. His mother was an equestrian um, owner, stable owner. Um, he was a wrestler. He was a football player. And he was able to matriculate to Duke as a freshman. And then surely never became really a star player at Duke, but was really one of those rah-rah guys, a, a leader of men um, doing whatever Coach Wade wanted to say. And while he was doing that at Duke, uh, thousands of miles away in Corvallis, a young boy named Frank Parker um, did not grow up with the means that Charlie Haynes did. Frank, you know, was collecting garbage and was helping the fish to earn money when he was 13 or 14. And Frank would go on to play football at Oregon State. And so the two really had little in common. They meet on the field one day. January 1st, 1942, in Durham. And Charlie Haynes played sparingly in that game. Frank Parker played about 25 minutes. And then, you know, they go their separate ways. And it's two and a half years later in Italy in July of 44 that Frank Parker arrives as a replacement soldier for the 88th Division that had been fighting in Italy. And he strikes up a conversation with a gentleman, and it turns out it was Charlie Haynes. And these two boys start talking about that Rose Bowl game they had both played in as combatants two years earlier. Flash ahead a few months in 44, and Charles Haynes gets shot while climbing a hill in the Arno Valley by the Germans and is laying bleeding to death for 17 hours. Frank Parker was nearby and learned that Haynes had been shot. And Parker risks his own life and runs onto the hill and I won't tell the readers exactly how it ends, but picks up 
the body of Charles Haynes and gets him to a medical aid station to try to save his life. And it's really some of those connections which I believe make this story. So it wasn't just that the Rose Bowl was moved in 1942. It wasn't just that these players and coaches went off into war. It's that literally, for example, in this case, they went from being opponents in the Rose Bowl to really teammates, if you will, you know, during World War II, thousands of miles away. And it's, you know, in fact, as we speak, to tell you how the story comes full circle, I am holding in my hand, I just picked up a money clip. And the money clip is actually a whale's tooth that was taken off a whale that Frank Parker had caught. He was a fisherman for his life off of Kodiak, Alaska. And the only time that Frank Parker and Charles Haynes saw one another after they left Italy together at the end of the war in 45 was at a reunion of these two teams in uh, 1991. Um, and it was first in Corvallis, and then it, one was held in Durham four weeks later. And at that time, Frank Parker gave a money clip engraved on a whale's tooth to Charles Haynes as a symbol of their friendship, and it was actually passed on to me by the family to keep it as kind of a souvenir. So it's, it's very meaningful to me, and it was meaningful to tell that story of Charlie and Frank. You know, uh, I could have made other literary decisions, and going with a star player and just following them because they were the star, but as some of your listeners may know, sometimes the best stories aren't from the star quarterback. They're not from the president of the United States. They're from, from, from someone in his cabinet mm. or someone just away from the spotlight sometimes have the better stories. Absolutely. We're speaking with Brian Curtis about his book, Fields of Battle, Pearl Harbor, the Rose Bowl, and the Boys Who Went to War. We're talking about the Rose Bowl of January 1942, the only time that the Rose Bowl was not played in Pasadena, California. And this extraordinary book not only talks about that hard-fought game, but uh, tells the stories of many of the young men who uh, who played in that game and who later went to war. Um, I appreciate so much uh, the context that you create for this dramatic game in 1942, not only by helping us understand this moment in time, but also helping us understand uh, some of the intriguing contrasts between these two schools, Duke and Oregon State. Just say a word about that, uh, about these two schools and their, their, their respective football programs. Well, these are certainly generalizations I'll make, uh, but in in general, think of Oregon State as the blue-collar school. Uh, a lot of transitional students, a lot of students were first-generation college-goers in their family. Um, a lot of them came off of farms or fathers were fishermen. Um, Oregon State was not a football power. In fact, that year they were picked to finish near the bottom of their conference, the Pacific Coast Conference. But you know, they loved being out there. They loved playing for each other, and they loved their coach, Lon Steiner. On the other side of the country, you had Duke University, which had transformed itself over decades and decades through some name changes. And then the Duke family gave them a $40 million gift in 1924, which really changed the university. 
But Duke University was, um, for the most part, for middle to upper class students from strong academics. They had a very conservative um, uh, academic curriculum. It was the basics of just history and English and some basic science. And so it's interesting because when war eventually broke out, um, you know, the government had basically asked a lot of colleges to to expedite graduation. The faster you graduated kids, the more bodies they would have in service. And at Duke, of course, Oregon State did went overboard, um, offering courses in arm and weaponry and uh, engineering classes and how to make a specific kind of metal so fighter pilots can test bullets and things like that. Duke had a huge internal debate about what they would do. And what Duke ended up with was they formed a special committee and they, they did change graduation requirements, but they only went from 122 credits needed for graduation to 120, which as you can imagine does not in the whole grand scheme of things make a difference. Now, they would eventually end up speeding kids through law school and medical school at Duke. But a lot of folks at Duke, though they wanted to certainly support the war effort, um, were also conscientious about not losing the true liberal arts education that Duke was about. So the contrast is there, um, you know, just these guys from Oregon State getting on a train, many of them for the first time in their lives, taking it to Durham, staying in a nice hotel, being treated the way they were, was really an eye-opener for a lot of those kids. Right. Uh, and back to Duke for a moment, I thought it was interesting when you described this this moment in time as war looms that, uh, that there really was, as you've already said, quite a lot of tension within the Duke community itself in terms of how they should uh, adjust what they did and uh, adjust what they offered, uh, trying to remain true to who they were and yet being supportive of the war effort. And you go as far as to say that uh, that there was sometimes what we might think of as a very tense, even painful disconnect at Duke between sort of standard students and soldiers who were there participating in some of these new programs. That's the kind of story we almost never hear. I mean, when we look back now uh, at this era, I think we tend to think of of all for one and one for all, and uh, right. and it was a, a completely right. uh, completely unified, harmonious effort to uh, defeat our enemy. But of course, well, there were these little pockets where there were different ideas about exactly how to go about doing that. And and it's a great point. And. You know, think about it. You're at Duke University. You've been a student there. You're used to a kind of student body. Then all of a sudden, especially after Pearl Harbor's attacked, a lot of your fellow classmates are disappearing. They're literally just leaving campus. Maybe they're already enlisted or they're ultimately going to be drafted, and they go off and fight to war. So you had these campuses, and Duke was not unique, where in, in some cases 75% of your student body disappeared within a period of a year or two. So how do you fill it? Well, the government started putting on Army finance schools and Navy training programs, and they took advantage of the fact that there were already professors, there were already dorms, there was plenty of space. And remember, too, that universities, if you don't have students, you don't have tuition to keep the lights on. 
And so the government would reimburse these universities for every soldier they trained over a period of 10 weeks to 16 weeks. So now on campus, you had many more people in uniform than you had civilians per se. And I think especially at a place like Duke, it took a good couple years for the Duke community to really embrace the, the idea of a soldier and that they are doing their part. Because as you pointed out initially, you know, Duke students would give soldiers dirty looks on campus, right? Because that's not what we were about at Duke. And to be fair, that happened at a lot of universities. Oregon State, even before the outbreak of war, was a hub for folks. They had one of the biggest ROTC programs in America. Fighting and being a soldier was just a part of their DNA. Right. In fact, you write write at at one point, Oregon State, for all intents and purposes, was a military academy during the war. I mean, it, 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 they folded very neatly into the war effort just by, in a sense, who they were and what they had already been doing. That's right. And they had the capabilities and ROTC graduates from Oregon State came back and trained the next generation. And, you know, so there, there were all these tangential places. But, of course, o- Oregon State was not perfect. I mean, one of the, the gentlemen that I write about in the book, Jack Yoshihara, was a Japanese-American, born in Japan, but spent most of his life, almost all of his life, uh, being raised in Portland, Oregon, was good enough to play football at Oregon State. And as soon as Pearl Harbor was attacked, faced some real awful hatred, racial prejudice, hateful speech being spit on, as did other Japanese-Americans, especially out West. And as I write about in the book, a few days before his team boards the train to the Rose Bowl, government officials come on the practice field in Oregon and pull them off and say, you're not going. You're, you're an enemy combatant. And Yoshihara and his family would end up in an internment camp. And again, that that is a huge part of this story for me, because again, as much as we glorify those years, I think it was also an ugly time in our, our country. And to be able to tell his story, which I think is one of the most heroic of all the gentlemen I write about, even though he never picked up a gun and never went overseas and fought on Iwo Jima or Guadalcanal or um, in the Po Valley in Italy. But the fact that he endured this and went on and got married and had a successful life was really heroic to me. Absolutely. I could not agree more. A quick word about the Rose Bowl itself. Uh Ahead of uh, talking about 1942, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, you described the way in which the the teams who played in the Rose Bowl, how those teams would be chosen back in the 1930s. It's really quite intriguing. So the Rose Bowl itself, that we know it, you know, used to be called the East-West Tournament Game, and that that has all um, you know changed through the years. At different points, it was the uh, conference or the Tournament of Roses inviting teams. Then it moved to the conference of the West Coast champion picking the team. Then, by the time we got to 1941, it was whoever, whichever team won the Pacific Coast Conference would then select its own opponent for the game. Clearly, they wanted a good team, but they also wanted a team that could sell tickets that might be popular in Southern California. So 
I write about this hectic night that after Oregon State clinches a spot in the Rose Bowl for the first time ever, everyone's partying on the streets and going nuts. The administrators and coach are huddled throughout the night figuring out, okay, who are we going to invite? Well, we'd love to invite this team. Minnesota was number one in the country, but their conference didn't allow teams to play in the postseason. Well, we'd love to invite this team, but we think they're already going to this bowl game. And we'd love to invite this team, but we don't know if they can sell tickets. So in the end, they actually settle on Duke University, and that's how it came to be. Now, of course, today, many, many years later, the Pac-12 conference, for those that follow sports, is still tied into the Rose Bowl, as is the Big Ten conference. And now with the college football playoff, it's actually a lot more complicated than it used to be. Right. It's so intriguing. Yeah, just the, the machinations. And also... You know, for the sports fans, they're writing about the differences in football. And and it was still a game that was somewhat like we see today. Um, but certainly the equipment was dinner, different. Some of the rules were different. Most of the players played every play on offense and defense and special teams. So specialization has really overcome football now. But, right. you know, overall, I hope folks walk away from this book feeling a little bit more educated about a certain time and place in history. I hope they appreciate the sacrifice that these young boys made. They appreciate what Jack Yoshihara and other Japanese Americans had to go through. Um, and that we keep these lessons in mind as we move forward. Absolutely. I think of the uh, the words of uh, of a former president of Duke that he said just a, a couple of weeks before he died in the fall of 1940, so even well ahead of the central events of your book uh, ensuing, when he said, this generation is to be tested by fire. And, of course, that proves to be so very, very true for so many of the young men that you talk about uh, in your book. The book, again, is called Fields of Battle, Pearl Harbor, the Rose Bowl, and the Boys Who Went to War. Uh, It focuses on the 1942 Rose Bowl, which because of war concerns was was not permitted to be played in Pasadena, California, was played instead in Durham, North Carolina, the home of Duke, who were very welcoming, generous hosts uh, to the players of Oregon State. You can read all about all the ways in which Durham, North Carolina, welcomed uh, these young men into their community. A hard-fought football game that uh, is detailed in the book. And then the experiences that many of these men go on to experience on the battlefield and elsewhere. Fields of Battle is published by Flatiron Books, the author Brian Curtis. Brian Curtis, congratulations on a wonderful book. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for having me on.